I want to jump in the Word. We've been in a series called Family Goals, and uh, I want to continue it today. And I want to talk about some things that, that might be a little bit heavy, um, but I believe God really has a heart for. And uh, I believe God's going to do some miracles today. We've been singing about it. Uh, but we don't just sing about miracles. We really believe in miracles. And uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but as a church, we believe uh, that, and, and we're not just trying to have fill buildings. We're not just believing God for full buildings or multiple services. We're, we're believing God for city transformation. And, um, and, and that we're just crazy enough to believe that God can do that. We're believing God for a move of his spirit in the young people. And uh, I believe we're going to see a, just a revival and an awakening in our schools this fall. It's going to be incredible. And um, I know some of you are thinking, like, we already have a lot of young people. We're going to have more. It's going to be awesome. And, um, oh, man, there's a lot of young people in this church. Guess what? In heaven, there's not an old people heaven and a young people heaven. It's just heaven. Did you know the church should not be old people church and young person church? The church should just be church. And just because you've been to churches before where you haven't seen young people doesn't mean that young people shouldn't be in church. In fact, I have kids. I really want a church that has young people in it. And uh, we're going to continue to reach the next generation, but we really believe, we sense this, that God's really doing something in the next generation. You're going you're to see it over the next couple months uh, as young people give their life to Jesus, and uh, we're believing for household salvations, household salvations. Joshua chapter 24, verse 14. Y'all ready? It says, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, let's just say it together. We will serve the Lord. This is where we've been camping out the last couple weeks. Joshua chapter 24. Joshua makes a declaration. This is not just something fancy he's writing. This is a decision that he's making. That we will serve the Lord. He says even that others might make different decisions than what he's making, but he's saying, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. I'm just going to tell you, if you're going to raise a godly family in 2022, there's going to be some people that don't agree with you. If you're going to have a biblical worldview in 2022, let's just be honest. If you're going to be alive in 2022, someone's going to disagree with you, all right? You can't make everybody happy, so you might as well choose that as for you and your house, you will serve the Lord. A godly family happens by decision, not by default. I think sometimes we just think that you're going to wake up and you're just going to have a godly family. You, you, you're not. Your mind left alone in neutral will gravitate towards self and flesh. So it's our job as parents, it's our job in our families to make sure that we don't leave to chance what we should decide by choice. So I'm not going to leave my kid's future to chance. We're making a choice. We will serve the Lord. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. You made a choice that your kids would go to school. I don't think it's unreasonable to make a decision that your kids should serve the Lord. But we make a choice, a decision. 
A godly ha- family happens by decision, not by default. I was, I was praying yesterday morning, preparing some of my notes, and, and uh, Jude and Jen wanted to go uh, out on the, on the porch, and so we went on the porch, and, and um, we were hanging out out there, and I said, okay, if you're going to be out here with Dad, you got to help me with my message. And so I'm going to ask you some questions, and I want you to answer. I said, just so you know, I'm going to be like telling the church your answers. Uh, so make sure, that they're, make sure that they're good. So I asked them, I said, what, what do you think parents should teach their kids? And this is what they rattled off, which is, I was pretty impressed. You should teach them good manners. Amen. To care for others. To be a good friend. To set a good example. To be a leader. To help others. I'm like, that's great. You know what to teach. Now could we start incorporating those in your, in your life? I asked them, what do you think parents should know about tr- how they should treat their kids? How do you think parents should treat their kids? Genesis piped up and he says, don't call them losers. <laughs> you know what? There's some truth to this. All right? If you're calling names in the house, just stop it. All right? From the mouth of a seven-year-old, he's just going to let you know it's not the way that you treat your kids. Jude said, tell them to do good things, not bad. Very, very good. Very insightful. What should parents, I asked him, what should parents teach their kids about Jesus? And this is awesome. Shout out to our kids' ministry. You, that you can pray outside of church. Woo! That's awesome. And you should accept Jesus in your heart. Hallelujah. And then I asked him, I said, what should parents, how, what should I tell parents about showing their kids that they love them? Well, Jamie, my wife, and Genesis have this thing. She's always trying to kiss him. She's always trying to hug him and kiss him. He's like, not having it. All right, so not interested, stay away. And she wasn't there, and he says, I think that they should kiss him. I'm like, oh, I thought this was not, this is against the rules for mom to give you a kiss. And, uh, but he said that's the way he knows that she loves him. Jude said, you should tell them that you love them even if they already know that you do. I was like, I said, Jude, can you speak at our next marriage conference to the men and let them know that they can't think it, they have to say it. I'm sorry. Don't get offended. Don't get offended. It's just 98% of men. Um, I know we have the 2% in the room today, but it's not enough to think. I told her I loved her at the altar. If anything changes, I'll let her know. No, you, you might need to tell her again. You know, it's your 20th wedding anniversary. Why don't you tell her one more time that you, you love her and you choose her and you care about her and all that good stuff. Somebody just got a bruise. Uh, you know, you know when, you're, when you're planning your family, you never plan for the worst. We always hope for the best. We have like a wedding pandemic happening in our, in our church and um, a lot of weddings and a lot of babies and, and it's just happening everywhere. We're doing like weddings every weekend and um, I can't wait till y'all get married so I can have my weekends back, okay? Um, but we're doing weddings every weekend and, and, um, and it's, you know, at the altar, no, one, no one's up there thinking like, this might not work out. And if they are, they're not saying it. They're up there thinking like, oh, yeah, this is amazing. This is, oh, my high school sweetheart. It's going to be amazing. We're never having a problem. Look at all those other marriages having tough times. Not us. We're different. You know, all the, all the things um, of people that have never been married. And you don't, you don't plan for the worst. You hope for the best. With a family, you're not hoping your kids don't do well. 
You're hoping that they do well, that they turn out, that they're smart, that they're godly, all, all, all of those things. But I want you to know this, and you know it already as, as well as I do, that in every family, there is also the presence of dysfunction. There, there is no perfect family. There's the ideal that we're aiming for, and then there's the real like where things actually are. There's the ideal, which are like goals, and then there's like the, the real deal, which is where things presently are. And the truth of the matter is, in every family, every marriage, every relationship, there is some element of dysfunction. And so I, I want to take a couple minutes to begin to just like talk about what do, you, what do you do, not with the good times, what do you do with the dysfunction? What do you do when all the things that you thought would turn out this way turn out that way? What, what, what do you do with a kid that you thought would never rebel? And all of a sudden, you just learned a new part, a new side of him, and all of a sudden, he's out of control. And I want to use the story of the prodigal son to draw some analogies. Luke chapter 15 tells a story. Um, Jesus tells this story. And there's all kinds of incredible truths that you can pull from Luke chapter 15. But it's amazing that Jesus tells this story to illustrate the love of the Father. That God is always open-hearted. And this isn't about family. This is maybe just for you today. That God's arms are open to you. That God's not looking to judge you, to criticize you, to come down on you. God, God is looking to embrace you with open arms. Doesn't matter what you've done, how far you've gone, what decisions you've made. Doesn't matter if you blasphemed God, ran from God. He's waiting with open arms to receive you. And that's, that's who our God is. It's awesome. So the story of the prodigal son the, the father has two sons. The youngest son comes to the father, and he asks him to give him his inheritance early. He says, I want my inheritance. I want it, I want it now, which is just completely dishonoring to the father. He's basically saying, what I get when you're dead, I want now while you're alive. You're basically, you're dead to me now. I want to take what's mine and leave. And he takes, and he says, the Bible says that he spends it on wild living, on prostitutes and gambling, and, and uh, the guy's out of control. And we all talk, and there's all kinds of messages about the sun and the wild living. But, but I want to I just think about this. I want to think about what was the father doing while the son was out going crazy? Luke chapter 15, verse 17, it says, when he came to his senses. So there was a time that the son came to his senses. He realized, I'm not going anywhere. This is not good. I'm hungry. I like dad's house because he has food. I like a roof over my head. He came to his senses. And I'm believing this for every person that's believing for a prodigal son, a prodigal daughter. And I'm going to say it this way because this is what we're talking about family, a prodigal mom a prodigal dad, a family member that you're believing for, I'm telling you, there's going to be a time where they're going to come to their senses. So he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. Now listen to this. By, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Now, everybody talks about this reunion, which is so beautiful. 
But do you think there was probably a time where the father was a little frustrated that the son just took his inheritance and took off? Do you think that the father had to process any thoughts of, I must have failed as a father to have my son do this? I'm just going to tell you this. If I put myself in the scenario, and I'm just imagining my youngest son, Genesis, saying, I want my inheritance now. Forget you, Dad. Forget everything you've done for me. And he leaves. And then he has the audacity to come back. I'm just saying, like, I'll take him back, but it's not going to be with open arms and compassion. I'm going to be like, you know how much you cost me? I told you you'd come back. Like, it took a little longer than I thought, but you're back. You want to sleep here tonight? That's what you want to come to my house. You want, this is my, I bought this house. You're coming in here, right? Is there anybody else? All right, just me. Cool. <laughs> Didn't mean to get my flesh there for me. I just, you have, you know, you just think about this stuff. But everyone's just like, oh, the father, he's just, this kid just went crazy. But the response of the father is not reiterating the things that he did wrong. And I think sometimes in parenting we have a problem because the kids don't listen. And so when they come back, then we got to make sure that they know the decision that they made. And they already know. Partner with their strengths instead of their weaknesses. Be glad that they repented. Be glad that they came back. Be glad that they came to your house. Instead of reminding over and over of the bad decisions that they made and your advice to them as they were growing up that they did not heed. Prodigal actually means this, one who spends or gives lavishly or foolishly. Second definition is this, one who is returned after an absence. And I want to talk about this. Any person in your life or your family or relationships that is absent right now. We're believing that God's going to begin to do a work in prodigals to begin to draw them back into relationship with the Father and to begin to mend and reconcile bridges with you. How you handle prodigal times is vital to the success of your family. You may not have a prodigal son, but you will have a prodigal moment. You may not have a prodigal spouse, but you might have a prodigal moment. You might not have a prodigal dad, but you might have a prodigal moment. And they need to, how you handle those times is vital to your success. When I'm counseling families, some of the most damage that I see done to children are not by the mistakes that they've made, but by the parents' response to the mistakes that they've made. Kids are going to make mistakes. They are going to choose wrong things. But I saw, I've seen more damage in the response to the wrong things than even the choice of the wrong things. I, I want to explain it like this. And, and I think this is really important. And so I know we've got a lot of families represented. Some of you want to have families. Some of you single. You, you're looking forward to having a family. Some of you used to have a family. Some of you have grown kids, young kids, broken families, blended family, all of it. we got it all. But I'm going to tell you this. This will speak to every person if, if, if you allow it. Now, there's a process of parenting, and it should go like this, from control to influence. That when a child, you're entrusting your family with a child, there needs to be an element of control. It's interesting. We have a pervasive mindset of parenting right now that is just like, let the kid decide. Which is like, if you really believe that, let that play out in every area of their life. Why are you only allowing that in one area or two areas? If the three-year-old wants to go in the street, why doesn't he get to decide? Oh, now you're going to control him? Like, no. It's got, keep, keep, keep it consistent. There is an age 
in which you are the guardian, the steward, the caretaker, the trainer, and you have to have control. I'm not talking about controlling. I'm talking about deciding for your home while your home has not made a decision yet. Deciding that's for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. My boys, seven and eight, they don't get a decision. Are we going to church today? We go to church. I make that decision for them, and I'm still going to be making it for a couple years. That's what we do. That's our family. That's, our, that, that's what we have decided. But control over time should give way to influence. And where I see a lot of problems in families is great parents of younger ages have control, but they never relinquish it. So now the 18-year-old has the same level of control over his life as he did when he was 18 months. You, you, you're going you're, you're to lose him. So good parents of younger ages sometimes are bad parents of older ages because they didn't allow themselves to move from control to influence. Pastor Steve told me years ago, he said, when, when, when your kids get older, and he was dealing with his, his own kids as they were walking through different seasons of their life, he says, you don't have control anymore. He said, the only thing you have is relationship. And if you have not built relationship, when you no longer have control, you'll have nothing. He said, so influence and relationship is so important. Now, some parents, all they want is relationship. Oh, it's just I want to be best buds with your three-year-old. <laughs> best buds at 13. But at some point, you got to be parent. Because the moment the best friend decides to put a boundary, you're in trouble. Because you've been best friend for 10 years, and now you want to say no, it's not going to work. So I heard a pastor illustrate it this way, and I think it's really powerful. He, when in, when uh, families in their church, when they dedicate their children to the Lord, he gives them a jar of marbles. And it's not because they're losing their marbles. It's not. That's, that's a dad joke. It's stupid. Uh, he gives them a jar of marbles, and he says, when the jar is full, it represents the control that you have. And you, you have control over your home, your family, you, you, you got some control. The marbles represent time. And he said every month, he gives it to the family, he said every month I want you to take a marble out of the jar. So as months go by, they take time out. And at the bottom of the jar, written across the bottom, is the word influence. And when you have lost all control... The only thing that will remain is the influence you have. And if you've never taken the time to invest in being a good example, into training, into taking control over the younger years and relinquishing that control into responsibility in the older years, you won't have the influence to lead them when you don't have control over them. This, this, so every day that goes by, we're losing time. So it is, it is so vital to the success of our families that we not just invest in the rules, but we invest in the human. That we build relationship with them. So you can't just be an authoritarian and not be an affirmer. They go together. You have to have clear boundaries, but you also have to encourage and affirm. And at some point, you're not going to have control any longer. And I, I found this to be true. If you don't train your kids, culture will gladly do it for you. 
If you don't train him, culture will gladly do it for you. So, so, so Pastor Andy Stanley, I was listening to a message of his on, on the family. And he's a great pastor. And, and he said this. He said in his home growing up, his kids are grown now. He said they had two, two rules. He said these are pretty basic because they wanted, he wanted to teach them honor. And he wanted to teach them not to break relationship. And so he said two rules. Honor your mom. He's like, I figured if they honor their mom, they probably honor me. They probably honor everybody. So honor your mom and don't lie. Because lying breaks relationship. If you lie, if I can't trust you, this breaks relationship. So honor your mom and don't lie. And that was his, his, his oldest son came to him and he was like, Dad, I don't know if that's like the most important thing. And he goes, no, those are the two rules of the Stanley family. That's the most important thing. And he goes, yeah, well, I've got one more. And he said, what? And he goes, uh, don't worship the devil. <laughs> He's like, right, okay, now we have three rules. <laughs> honor your mom don't lie and don't worship the devil. That's, that should be a given. But there you go. Don't, don't worship the devil. What he was doing was creating clear boundaries. Clear boundaries. And if you're going to lead your home, you have to have clear boundaries. Consistent discipline and constant encouragement. You know what's crazy? All of us are good at like one of these. Some of you are great at disciplining. You just need to learn how to encourage. Tell people you love them. Give them a hug once in a while. Some of you are great at cheerleading. And you need to have some rules. It's these things together that bring about training. Now, my, my mom and dad, me growing up, they had very clear rules. I mean, it's like respect was like one of those top ones. Like, you did not disrespect people. That's like a high priority in the Bates family. And, uh, and I knew that. It was crystal clear to me. And I was probably like 13 years old, and, and uh, I was sitting in church. My dad was a pastor. He was preaching. And we didn't have phones back then, so we were like doing handwritten notes. Anybody remember those days? And so I was using the tithing envelope to write a note, and I was passing it down. And like, yeah, no, no not you. The next girl. The next and, and then she laughed. She thought it was funny. She thought it was funny. And, uh, and so I was, I was writing notes and passing them down. And, and uh, my dad was watching this while he's preaching. He could see me, you know, and he saw me pass it down and pass it down. And then her, and then she laughed, and then she passed it back. And so he called me by my middle name in, in the church, man. And he gave me that middle name. It's after my grandpa. It's Earl. It's like, you gave me the name, and you called it me, called me my, by my middle name in public. He said, Dustin Earl Bates. I'm like, I'd never sat up straighter in my life. And I knew, I knew right then. He said, please pay attention to the message. And uh, afterwards we had a little chat and um, publicly. So he publicly shamed me. That's how, that's, that's how that went down. And uh, he said, don't ever disrespect the preaching of God's word by coming into church and passing notes to some girl. Or, or he said, you are part of this family and you will pay attention to the word of God when it's being preached. Yes, sir. I said, I'm also moving out, Dad. Forget about you. You embarrass me. I'm not a huge proponent of public shaming, but I will say this. Your discipline should be consistent. You know what I find? A lot of families discipline really well at home, but in public around their friends or whatever, then they'll let anything slide. And you're teaching your kids that the rules only apply when people aren't looking. It's important to have consistency and discipline. Can I say this? I'm just gonna be real careful. I'm gonna say it and then back out, okay? So just like say it. You can be mad for a second, and then I'll. You've gotta stop threatening your kids. You do it one more time, I'll throw your iPad in the lake. No, you're not. 
You bought that iPad. You're not throwing it in the lake. And if you said you were, you said you would, you should. Because you're destroying your credibility by offering empty threats to your kids. And then this is why the home is just crazy and everybody's escalating. Oh, oh, oh yeah, Dad, well, I'll drive your car in the lake. And, oh, yeah, well, I'll burn the house down. It's like, guys, stop. <laughs> Nobody's doing any of that. We need some clear boundaries. Some, that really escalated. <laughs> some consistent discipline. And we need constant encouragement. Did you know that discipline should not be for punishment? Discipline is for training, which means this. Discipline should never happen out of anger, and discipline should never be reactionary. I can't believe you said that. Whoa, whoa. That's called anger, sir. You need to go to counseling, and you need to get delivered. I said I was going to stop. I said I was going to stop. I was supposed to go back out and be done. That was just one more. Now I'm, now I'm really out. We don't operate out of reaction. Love, how does God discipline us? The Bible says he is a good father, gives good gifts to his children. The Bible also says in Hebrews that he disciplines those he loves. Does he discipline us to punish us? No. He disciplines us to train us. So the discipline of the father is discipline out of love, and it, it, the intention is to train. So in our family unit, discipline cannot be to punish. It's to train. Discipline can't be out of anger because that doesn't train us. That makes kids fear us. And when the marbles are gone, you will not have influence if your kids fear you. If you want your kids to respect you, it doesn't mean don't discipline them or be their best buddy. It means have clear boundaries, consistent discipline, and constant encouragement. The world will do an awesome job of telling your kids how they can't make it or how they don't measure up. So let your home be the place that tell them they can do anything. They can do anything they set their mind to. My mom used to tell me, she's like, Dustin, you can do anything you set your mind to. She's lying. I think. She might believe I can. I don't know. I'm, I, I'm confused. I've heard it so many times. I'm like, maybe I can. You, your kids need to hear the affirmation, and it's never void of discipline. They work together to create a proper atmosphere. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6 says, Train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, we all know the scripture, and this is important. I believe this. Train up a child in the way he should go. When he is old, he will not depart from it. I want to spend the rest of our time talking about the, the in-between process when it seems like they're departing from it. When I've done everything I know to do, and I have no more control, and I'm left with influence. I wish I had more. I wish I would have done more, but now here I am. And maybe this is your parents. Maybe this is your children. Maybe this is a spouse, but the only thing you have left is influence. What do you do? I want to give you some prayers to pray by looking at this story of the prodigal son. Number one prayer to pray. And I believe this. When you're left with influence, you always have a prayer to pray. You always have an attitude that you should have. And you always have an action you should take.
a prayer that you should be praying, an attitude that you should be having, and an action you should be taking. All right? It kind of goes together. You can wrap it if you want. A prayer that you should be praying, an attitude that you should be having, and an action you should be taking. And the first one is this. Lord, change. I know. It's a hard one. Lord, change me. Yeah, I came to you about my dad. I know. I know. Lord, change me. You don't understand how she, no. Lord, change me. You know, when, when David sinned with Bathsheba, and uh, in, in, in the Bible, this prophet came to him and he realized he had made a mistake. And in Psalm 51, he writes, create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within. He didn't say, Lord, help Bathsheba not bathe in public. He said, he said create in me a clean heart. Change me first. Do the work in me. So, Lord, change me is your prayer. Humility is your attitude. Humility is saying and understanding I could be a part of the equation. Whether good or bad, you have contributed to the atmosphere of your family. That's not meant to be a heavy. That's just the, the reality. We all have contributed to the atmosphere that we live in. So, Lord, change me is my prayer Humility is my attitude, and responsibility is my action. And this would look like this. Maybe there's somebody you need to apologize to or repent to. But what about what they did? No, no, you got to get the, get the progression right. We're not done yet, okay? It's, we're going to get to the other parts. It starts with us. Lord, change me. I'm the only Christian in my family. Good. Lord, change me me. Transform me. Take responsibility. Well, what I did compared to what they did, no, 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 we're not there yet. Just take responsibility for what you did. Lord, change me. When all you have left is influence, Lord, change me. The second one's really hard. Lord, I give them to you. Man, this is difficult because you're saying, now I'm relinquishing control. I realize that my time has passed for whatever it was. Maybe there's been mistakes. Maybe good times, bad times. I realize all I have left is influence. Lord, I need you. Change me, and Lord, I give them to you. I'm relinquishing control. One of the biggest problems in families are broken expectations. I just expected you to do this, and you did this. I expected you to be, be faithful, and you weren't. I expected you to be loving, and you're not. I expected you to be a good dad, and you're not. I expected you to have a job, and you don't. I, it's broken expectations. I expect you to take out the garbage. And you, I expect you to put the toilet paper over the top. No. <laughs> expectations. These are what cause problems. It's a difference of expectation. So the first thing I do is, Lord, change me. But the second thing I do is, Lord, I give it to you. I surrender it to you. So, Lord, I give them to you as my prayer. Trust is my attitude. I trust you with this. You know, sometimes we get in the way of the Holy Spirit by never relinquishing control. That the Holy Spirit actually could be working in your spouse to be something better or different, but you keep on getting in the way. Can I tell you this? this, this, this you know what Pastor Steve said to me one time? I'm going to tell him. He was in the first service. He's not here now. I'm just going to tell you what he said to me. He told me, he said, Dustin, you're getting in the way of the Holy Spirit working on Jamie. I said, you're in the way. What 
telling me I'm in the way? He said, you're in the way of the Holy Spirit. You're trying to control it, trying to change it. Try, just let the Lord work. This is what giving over. So, Lord, cha Lord, change me is my first prayer. Lord, I give them to you is my second prayer. Trust is my attitude. I trust you with them. And surrender is my action. You know, this is really hard when you're dealing with a, a child that's walked away from the Lord. Surrender is not something you do daily. When I've talked to families, it's something you do like minute by minute. I surrender. I surrender. I trust you. God, I trust you. I trust you with this. I trust you. Lord, I give them to you as my prayer. Trust is my attitude. Surrender is my action. And the last one, this is where we all want to get to. Lord, change their heart. And you can't pray that until you pray the other two. I mean, you can, but you shouldn't. Lord, change their heart. After I've asked you to change my heart, after I've given up control, so I'm not trying to control the situation or control them, now, Lord, will you change their heart? God, will you soften their heart? And I'm going to tell you this, there's no person, no mom, no dad, no son, no daughter, no aunt, no uncle, uncle, no friend. There's no one that is outside the reach of the grace of God. That when you begin to pray and you begin to contend, there's nobody too far gone. There's nobody too angry. Nobody too resentful. Nobody too lost. Nobody too bitter. Nobody too perverse. Nobody... No, no one is outside of his loving grace, the loving grasp of the Father. Nobody. Nobody. So I begin to pray, Lord, change their heart. Change their heart. So now change the heart. Change their heart is my prayer, and faith is my attitude. Some of us pray, but we don't have faith. No, faith. And this is my favorite expectation is your action. Okay, I'll illustrate this one because this is, this is awesome. The Bible says that the father was waiting at the door with anticipation for the son to come home. So this, this, this is crazy. The father hadn't like given up. He wasn't sitting in his lazy boy saying, Lord, change his heart. He was waiting at the door. Lord, I, I pray for you to change his heart. I'm just is that him? No, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. Oh, man. Lord, you're going to bring him back. It's been a couple years. I don't know what he's doing. I heard some bad reports. Man, I'm going to have to use his middle name when he gets home. But boy, he, like, I'm believe, I'm expect, I'm, he's expecting a miracle. Some of us, we've been in the, the throes of life so long, we've just been throwing up prayers but not expecting God to answer. And the Father was waiting. Now, this is, this is interesting. The Son left on his own. It's his choice. His choice. He also came back on his own. And he came back humbly. And he came back with the realization of how good he had it. For some parents that I talk to, this is all they want. All they want is my son to realize how good he had it. Like, that's all. You know what's interesting? Look at the father's response. Okay? The father let him leave. The father didn't chase him. The father expected him to return, and he didn't condemn him when he came back. Now that's goals, family goals right there, that a father would let him leave and not chase him. Did you know there's a difference between, between being rescuing and welcoming? 
A lot of parents rescue, but God, in his illustration in the prodigal son, didn't rescue, he welcomed. Can I tell you just in your personal spiritual life, God's probably not going to rescue you from all your choices you made. He's going to welcome you into a home, into a house, and a refuge of peace. You're going to have to step into it, but the door's open and his arms are open. He's provided a way, a sanctuary, a safe place for you. He's probably not going to rescue you from all the decisions. You might have to pay some consequences. Did the crime, do the time, you know. Not going to rescue you, but he is going to welcome you. I just think we should get this idea of a father that's waiting with anticipation. Just waiting. Man, they're coming. They're coming back. Oh, man. I can't wait. I can't wait. And the first thing that he says is not, I told you so. He says, let's party. Let's party. Get dinner ready. Let's go. He's back. Thank you, Lord. Thank. Man, that's, I'm sure there is consequences. Like, I'm, I don't think he got a second inheritance. But he learned his lesson in the place that he ran to. And if you rescue your kids sometimes, instead of welcoming them, then you will always rescue them from the process that could deliver them from the thing that they're addicted to. So I have to love them, and I have to pray for them, and I have to welcome them, but I don't have to rescue them. It's obviously there's ages in this, so like they're four, they run in the street, please rescue them. But as your kids get older and the time starts ticking, control starts leaving, and influence is the only thing you have, then be like the father. I'm going to speak to, to kids in here that have parents that aren't serving God. Be the example of the father. The prodigal son is, is in those illustration Jesus told, father, son. But I want you to inject your life situation into the story. And I want you to say, maybe you need to be the father to your father. Maybe you need to be the father to your mother. Maybe you need to be the father to somebody in your family to show them the love of God that has your arms wide open, that shows them the welcoming nature. Maybe we need as a church to show the world what the father's like. That this is not a place where you get beat over the head or condemned for what you did or where you went. It doesn't mean we relax the standard. You already know when you did wrong. You don't need somebody to tell you again and again how bad you've been and all the things. You need to feel the love of God that says, get in this house. We're going to have a party. Cook up some dinner. Kick up the music. Let's celebrate. Not what you did wrong, but let's celebrate that you came back. Psalm 68, 6, I love this. I was in, in prayer this morning, and I didn't have this in my notes originally, but I just had this phrase just in my head. It says, the Lord sets the orphans in families. I, just want, I don't know who this is for. I feel like somebody might be even listening to this. Maybe you have goals for a family that didn't turn out, or maybe you have hopes someday. And I just want you to know that God hasn't left you alone, that God sees you and he loves you. It says that he sets the orphans in fam. He brings people around you. Is what it's saying. He is this. So God is our shelter, our refuge, our strength. He is the one that'll never leave us and never forsake us. And I want you to know that God is going to resurrect some dreams in this room 
of, of legacy. No matter how far a kid have ran or a parent has ran or a spouse has ran, I'm believing that God's going to resurrect faith to believe for a miracle. And I believe even as we get, begin to pray these prayers, that we're going to hear testimonies in this church of people that God has apprehended with his love and with his grace. Lord, change me. Lord, I give them to you. And Lord, change their heart.